right, let's go. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will <clears> study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I'm from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Nancy J, Audrey N, and Johan N. And Veronica C will be doing our Q&A today. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, you can contact either myself or any of the co-hosts. And you can do this by private message in the chat function. Please note that our speaker, Harlan G, will be recorded for the duration of this, today's study. However, the question and answer session which follows, that will not be recorded. We will post a link to the previous week's recordings in the chat function. We kindly ask if you can please make sure to keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study and also please turn off your video if you need to step away from your screen for any reason please just disconnect your camera um, and if you can refrain from using the chat function for the duration of the study we'll open up the chat function 10 minutes before the Q&A so if you have a question for Harlan please feel free to post it there. So over to you, Harlan G. in Scottsdale. Good morning, Harlan. Thank you, Maria. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be here. And I'm glad that Nancy J. and Larry K. were able to fill in for me last weekend when I was out of town and indisposed. So I'm really glad that we're back together again. And um, I had an opportunity last week to peruse Poop Park from a penthouse across the street. And Poop Park is always an interesting place. But uh, I'm back here now. <clears throat> and I just want to let you guys know that uh, in February, in March, excuse me, in March, for those who are in the Dallas Fort Worth area, I will be doing a one day workshop on the 25th of March in Richardson, Texas. If you go on the Dallas uh, website, the Dallas OA website, it's on there. There's details on there. And then also in April on the 21st, 22nd and 23rd, I will be in Silicon Valley, California. Their inner group is having a retreat. Now this retreat center for those who can make it is right on the Pacific Ocean. It's right on the water. So it's absolutely stunning. It is, not, it is not something to miss. If you can make it, come and be there with us. We're gonna have just a great time. And if Maria can uh, get the uh, action over there going, we're gonna come to Dublin, Ireland, but I'm just teasing her. I, I know she's trying. I know she's doing the best she can. Okay. We are going to start eventually on page 80 at the very bottom of the page with the sentence that says, the chances are that we have domestic troubles. So before we get to that all important paragraph, remember that we're in step nine. And the purpose of this endeavor is not so much to just stop eating. That's a very basic requirement or very basic sort of uh, thing that we're asking of God. Let's remember that in order to be sane people, in order to be whole human beings, the process of recovery is going to bring us through steps that are going to make us right with God, right with ourselves, and right with our fellow human beings. 
And this ninth step process is the major focal point of getting right with our fellow human beings. It is just an amazing, amazing step. And where does this come from? Well, it comes from very old teachings, very, very old teachings. But let's take a look at Sam Shoemaker. Sam Shoemaker was the rector at the Cavalry Mission in New York City. And he was the point man for the Oxford Group in New York. And Sam Shoemaker got to know Bill Wilson and Ebby Thatcher, and he got to know Fitz Mayo, and he got to know Hank Parkhurst, and he got to know these guys because when they would come to Oxford Group meetings, he would be at the Cavalry Mission. And Sam Shoemaker believed that in order for a person to achieve a relationship with his higher or her higher power, they had to overcome four impediments. What is an impediment? An impediment is something which slows or stops progress. That's what an impediment means. An impediment slows or stops progress. And there's four of them that he cited. And Sam Shoemaker taught the guys that were trying to get sober, trying to recover, that unless they could overcome these four impediments with God's help, they probably would be in trouble. So what are the four impediments to God? Number one, a resentment that you will not let go of. And that became our step number four. Number two, a secret that you will not tell, which became our step number five. Now, does that mean I have to come on the line here this morning with over a hundred of you and say, here's my bank account number, here's my PIN number, here's my password, blah, blah, blah. No, that's not what it means at all. So stop licking your chops. No, that's not what it means at all. What it means very simply is step five. I have to tell another person what's going on with me relative to resentments, fears, and the sexual harms done others. The third impediment to God is a harmful thrill that you will not stop. What does that mean? Gossiping, stealing, cheating, doing something that you know is harmful, not only to others, but ultimately to yourself. Because when you steal or you cheat or you do these things, unless you're an out and out sociopath, the guilt and the shame and the remorse are going to eat you up. And then you're going to go eat Fritos and Thin Mints from the Girl Scouts to assuage those feelings that come up. What is the fourth of the impediments that Dr. that uh, excuse me that Sam Shoemaker told the boys and this is the focal point of our discussion today. He said that the fourth impediment is a restitution that you will not make. Now let me explain and let me review. Number 1, what are the four impediments? The first being a resentment that you will not let go of. Number 2, a secret that you will not tell. Number three, a harmful thrill that you will not stop. And number four, a restitution that you will not make. Now, let me explain something. So you don't have to ask me later, what is the difference between a restitution and an amend? Restitution is Oxford group language. Amends is 
AA language. And one of the things that Bill did was he used amends to sort of get out of that Oxford group uh, language kind of rut. But there's so much Oxford group in this book, I fear that he may have been wasting his time, but that's okay. So the restitution that you will not make is going to kill us. So if we have unmade amends, this is often lurking in the background for the people who come on here and identify themselves as struggling or they are identifying themselves as um, chronic relapsers. You know, that, that takes its uh, taproot in a lot of different things. One of those things may very well be that they are unwilling to make certain amends. But what we're going to be talking about today, just for a little bit here, is when it comes to these domestic situations, and again, we're going to start on page 80, and we're going to be at the very bottom of the page, the chances are that we have domestic troubles. But let's take a look at some history here, because I think that it is very important for us to remember. And I mentioned this the last time we're together, but because we're going to be talking directly about amends that should and should not be made, I'm going to review the history here just a bit. We have two Ernie G's at the very beginning of AA history. We have Ernie Galbraith, who wrote in the first edition, The Seven Month Slip, and he eventually married Dr. Bob's daughter. And because he never did achieve a, a sobriety for a very long time, Dr. Bob's daughter, Sue, actually resented AA because of their inability to get Ernie sober. But we have another Ernie G, and his name was Ernie Gehrig. And Ernie Gehrig lived and in Ypsilanti, Michigan. Now, later on, we're going to have a show of hands. How many people know that Ypsilanti begins with a Y, not an I? So that'll, there you go. We've got Cindy because she's from uh, Michigan and she's laughing her tail off there because she knows she's from Michigan. So she knows that Ypsilanti begins with a Y, not an I. You know, you get a little Yiddish here. You get a little spelling. You get a little poop park. You get a you get all kinds of stuff here. You never know. We are very much a full service big book study. So I'm glad that I'm glad that we have that kind of fun. But anyway, okay. Ernie was from Ypsilanti, Michigan, and he liked the ladies. Even though he was married, he always had a lot of girlfriends kind of running around in the background. And Ernie's wife got tired of his shenanigans and she was threatening to leave him. And he said, I've got this job in Toledo, Ohio. And if I take this job and you stay with me, I'm going to straighten up and fly right, baby. I'm not going to do that stuff anymore. And they moved over to Toledo, Ohio. Okay. And while they were in Toledo, Ohio, he got work at a machine shop which was very challenging because it was during the depression, but he got work down there and he started up with girlfriends again. So no matter how many times he promised his probably Alanonic wife, I'm guessing, but no matter how many times he promised her that he wasn't going to go running around with a bunch of women, he did it anyway. And they 
heard about while they were in Toledo, they heard about a doctor in Akron, Ohio, who was fixing drunks. And they wanted to see, not they, she wanted to see if this would work. So she dragged him by the ear to Akron, Ohio, and went up to that doctor's office and said, sober up this drunk husband of mine. And Dr. Bob asked her to go and they talked for, he talked to Ernie for a while. And sure enough, Ernie really wanted to get sober or so it seemed. So Dr. Bob agreed to live with him. Now the timing was perfect because in August of 1935, Bill Wilson headed back to New York City to be with Lois. Lois was getting a little lonely over there. She had been on her own during uh, some of April, May, June, July, and this was August. So this was five months. And she had been to Akron on a couple of visits, but she was in New York and imploring Bill in letters to please come home. I'm, you know, I really miss you, sweetie. So he went back to New York and this was in late September of 35 and Ernie Gehrig and his wife moved in with Dr. Bob and moved in with Ann Smith. And so they were living there. And once again, Ernie got himself a couple of girlfriends in Akron. And his wife is sick and tired of his philandering behavior. And she says, I'm an attractive girl. I know how to talk to boys. I'm going to get myself a boyfriend and I'm going to show this son of a beehive, what it feels like. So she went and got herself a boyfriend in Akron and they're living with Dr. Bob and Ann and he's running around on her and she starts running around on him. And it was utter chaos. And it was the Friday night Oxford group meeting over at T. Henry and Claris Williams home. And Ernie's wife, she was in the kitchen with the other with the other uh, Oxford group women. And she says to her friend in the Oxford group that she showed his drunk butt what it's like. She went out and got him herself a boyfriend. And the women at the Oxford group gathered around her and said, you've got to tell Ernie immediately and make your restitution. And she didn't want to do it, but the next day was Saturday. Now, if you've ever heard me on my podcast say this, it's really true for me. I don't know how it is for anyone else. Saturday afternoons that are cold and rainy are made for a nap. And I'll tell you something. Last Saturday, when I was at across from Poop Park, I took a nap on Saturday afternoon. And man, it was it was like an elixir to my soul. But anyway, back to the thing here. So it's Saturday afternoon and Dr. Bob and Ann Smith, they were out buying groceries in Bob's Oldsmobile. Bob drove this old Oldsmobile and they come back with the groceries. But what happened while they were out was that Ernie is sitting in Dr. Bob's kitchen with his wife and she lays on, lays it on him that he, that, excuse me, that she has a boyfriend. 
he grabs a knife and it was a good thing that she was a little thing, she a little tiny thing, and she was fast on her feet because he's trying to stab her with the knife. I guess Ernie wasn't exactly what's good for the goose is good for the gander kind of a fella. I don't think he was uh, egalitarian in his viewpoint at this point. So he's trying to stab her with the knife and she's running around the house and he's telling, I'm going to kill you. And he's flailing this knife and in walk the Smiths, arms full of groceries, expecting their guests to help them load the groceries from the Oldsmobile into the house. And what they find is chaos, just chaos. And he's flinging the knife, he's swinging the knife, and he almost stabbed Dr. Bob's wife. And Dr. Bob is saying, give me that knife. You have to leave my house. You can't stay here anymore. Well, the reason that I'm telling you this story yet again is to review that sometimes amends need to be made and sometimes they need not to be made. But here's the warning, asterisk, big letters, capital letters, lots and lots of capital letters, big, big italics, italics, almost forgot the italics. Here's the warning, guys. You need a sponsor. You need someone that's objective to help you disseminate what amends should be made and what should not be made. And there are very, very few amends that should not be made. Sometimes we think, well, I don't want to make the amends because this is, and those reasons do not hold water. Remembering always, there are very specific instructions, except when to do so would injure them or others, not that would injure you. I've had people through the years, I can't make that amend. I just bought a house. I just bought a condo. I My daughter's in school. It doesn't say that. You, you found the way to steal the money. You find the way to pay it back. You found the way to violate this other person. You find a way to make it good. Very, very important. Uh, very, very important. Okay, so now. We have a situation with that in mind, with that in mind, let's go to the bottom of page 80. But just to review while you're turning to the page, the last of the four impediments is a restitution that you will not make. Real quickly, uh, resentment you will not let go of, a secret you will not tell, harmful thrill you will not stop, and last but not least, a restitution that you will not make. Okay, bottom of 80, let's go. The chances are that we have domestic troubles. Perhaps we are mixed up with women in a fashion we wouldn't care to have advertised. We doubt if in this respect, alcoholics are fundamentally much worse than other people. But drinking does complicate sex relations in the home. After a few years with an alcoholic, a wife gets worn out, resentful, and uncommunicative. How could she be anything else? The husband begins to feel lonely, sorry for himself. He commences to look around in the nightclubs or their equivalent for something besides liquor. Now, before we get to the next point, let me just assure you, I've never been alcoholic and I've never cheated on anyone that I was either dating, which is 
I've had like three situations like that, or that I was married to, which I've had one situation like that. However, I was cheated on in my marriage. My wife had a relationship, a romantic sexual intimate relationship with a man while we were married. And I will tell you that I've suffered a lot of humiliation in my life. Humiliation found me very easily. I was a very prime target for it throughout my life. I was an object of ridicule because of my size. I was uh, I would I, believe me, humiliation found me quite easily. So, so that was I was no stranger to that. But there's very little I could describe to you until you're standing in your kitchen and you don't really know what you're hearing because it sounds surreal divorce and words that you never thought would come out of your wife's mouth. You just never believed that this family that you've been a part of for the last 18 years is now going to fall apart. And it was so surreal. I couldn't really even let it in for months. For months, I just kept thinking, no, this isn't really going to happen. No, it's a dream. No, she's going to come to her senses. No, she's really not going to do that. But she did. And it was it was reality, but I, I had a hard time letting it in. But I think that the humiliation that I felt that my wife of 17 and a half years was carrying on an intimate relationship with some other man was a very, very difficult amount of pain. And I don't think I'm I don't think that you I ever I don't know about anyone else. I don't think I ever will get over that. I think it's a trauma that you carry with you. But if you have the steps and you have God and you have the fellowship of OA, I can live with it instead of dying from it. But it's a very, very difficult thing. Now, I do not have firsthand experience with cheating, with doing that. I don't have it. Um, so I can't really relate to the person who does it. I can only really relate to the person on the other side of, this, of the coin who had it done to them. So uh, I'm going to be kind of limited here in my perspective. But what I do have, what I do have is years and years and years and years of sponsoring men who did it and who related their tales to me in our conversations. So without getting into personalities or saying Joe Blow of, you know, Kentucky says this or Fred Smith of, you know, Vermont says that, but we'll we'll do the best we can with generalities. Let's continue. In uh, perhaps he is having a secret and exciting affair with the girl who understands. Now, where does this understanding come from? It comes from not caring. Now, if you're not married to me and we're just having sort of a relationship, you're not really tied into my money. You're not tied into the fact I'm getting drunk on a very regular basis. You're not tied into the fact that I have a wife and children. So to you, as long as I'm willing to buy you drinks and take you places and show you a good time, that's a whole different paradigm that's a whole different perspective than the wife who's home with the kids with his mother with his relatives with his friends with all the yoke 
that life ties, that we tie to, the bills, the house, the jobs, all these various things, the, the, the girlfriend or the boyfriend, they're living in a different reality because these incumbences, these responsibilities don't touch them. What we say in Chicago is he's playing with house money. What does that mean? She's not playing on money that's hers. She's just along for the ride. And as long as he's willing to buy her drinks and as long as he's willing to take her places and as long as he's willing to have, quote unquote, a really good time with her, it, it's no skin off of her nose. But the wife has a whole different perspective. She has these responsibilities. So the one who quote unquote, understands, understands because of the liberation from the day-to-day -day responsibilities, the day-to-day -day encumbrances of life. Let's continue. In fairness, we must say that she may understand, but what are we going to do about a thing like that? A man so involved often feels very remorseful at times, especially if he is married to a loyal and courageous girl who has literally gone through hell for him. One of the things I will tell you is my ex-wife saved my bacon with relative to my business. When we were going down, we I sell on the phone with caller ID, business dropped 75%. She rolled up her sleeves. She, she did whatever she needed to do to keep us afloat. So if my wife can do that, then I have to think that other wives do the very same thing. So to cheat on that person was unthinkable to me, but it obviously wasn't unthinkable to her. But there are people who have different paradigms. They have different ways of looking at things. We're not going to judge them. We're not going to, we're, we're not the Acme judgment company. People do things and sometimes they, they, you know, in their mind, it just makes perfect sense, but maybe it wouldn't make sense to us. Maybe it wouldn't make sense to the, to the sober. Maybe it wouldn't make sense to, you know, whoever. But the bottom line is this is stuff that we do have to encounter. If we don't encounter it in our own life, then certainly we are going to encounter it as we move forward to sponsor other people. And if you are a sponsor and you do encounter this and you will, it's just a matter of when, you have to treat this with as a very sensitive and very high priority situation. Whether you're sponsoring the cheater or you're sponsoring the cheated, it will not make a difference. This issue is going to be very, very topical and sensitive because there's two areas there's two areas where most people will feel the most amount of pain and suffering. And those two areas are finance and romance, finance and romance. And you know what they say, if you don't heal your wounds, you will bleed on people that did not cut you. So as you go through life, whether it's friend, whether it's romantic, whether it's whatever business, whatever, you're getting a lot of residual crap because people get traumatized by the hurt that they feel. And sometimes they can only lay that on you 
because the person that inflicted the harm on them is nowhere to be found. They've been out of their life for a long time, long time. They're long gone. So, but they, you will encounter fear. You will encounter doubt, doubt. You'll encounter hesitation. You'll encounter a lot of suspicion, things like that. This is what I've noticed after my decades of being a sponsor is it does affect people. These behaviors do not go in and out very lightly. They leave their mark on the person, whether they were the cheater or the cheat ed, it, it, it will leave its impression on you. Let's continue and let's see what it says. These are specific instructions now. Whatever the situation, we usually have to do something about it. Now, what is something that we're going to do, it says, if we are sure our wife does not know, it's assuming that the wife is the one not cheating and the husband is the one cheating. Uh, should we tell her? Not always, we think. If she knows in a general way that we have been wild, should we tell her in detail? Good question. Let's see what the book says. Undoubtedly, we should admit our fault. She may insist on knowing all the particulars. She will want to know who the woman is and where she is. Go wring her neck or something. We feel we ought to say to her that we have no right to involve another person. Very specific instruction. This is a textbook. This is the big book. This is a specific instruction. Let's read that again. We feel we ought to say to her that we have no right to involve another person. We have no right to save our skin at the cost of another person's reputation, health, or anything. So we don't do that. We are sorry for what we have done, and God willing, it should not be repeated. Okay? More than that, we cannot do, but you have to do at least that much. So if you're cheating, what do you have to do? If your wife doesn't really know who you're cheating with, you can't involve them. You've got to cease and desist. You've got to stop. Now, this is not as prevalent in OA as it is in AA. In AA, I, you know, I, I'm not in AA, but I, I went to their meetings for the nine years I lived in Oregon. There was no OA. And it's very, very ubiquitous. It's very, very, very common, very ubiquitous throughout. But in OA, not so much. You do encounter it, not quite as much. Where you will encounter it is in the crossovers, the people that come from AA to OA. Because remember, guys, we're the last house on the block. Um, you will encounter quite a number of situations like this. I had a situation on my hands. This isn't about cheating, but this is just what you'll encounter. I had a situation on my hands decades ago. There was a woman and a daughter, and they were fighting over the same man. And, and the man was cheating on the mom with the daughter and cheating on the daughter with the mom. And then it came out, it, it, it got discovered. And so that was something that I remember having to, to deal with. Uh, you know, I didn't have to deal with it that, but I, I learned of this and it was quite amazing. Quite, quite, I didn't have to deal with it. No, but I, I learned of it. All right. More than that, we cannot do. We have no right to go further. So there may be justifiable exceptions, and though we wish to lay down no rule of any sort, we have often found this is the best course to take. What is the best course to take? If the spouse or the girlfriend or the boyfriend or whoever it is does not know, 
specifics, you don't tell them. You don't hurt them for nothing. If they do know the specifics, then you stop the behavior and you make your amends. So you have to gauge where the person is. If you know that they know who it is, and a lot of times, you know, one thing I'll tell you is, Ladies figure out everything. So don't, you know, don't, don't even try it. You know, just not, a, not a great idea. But the bottom line is if they know specifically, then you have a different situation on your hands. But if they don't know specifically, leave the situation to your behavior. You have no right to involve someone else besides yourself. You just don't. Bottom of 81. Our design for living is not a one-way street. It is as good for the wife as for the husband. If we can forget, so can she. It is better, however, that one does not needlessly name a person upon whom she can vent jealousy. Um, this is very important. You want to remember always that I don't care who you are. I don't care what your situation, we are sensitive people. We are sensitive people. We have feelings, we're human. You cut us and we bleed. And no matter how tough a person may seem on the inside or outside, and when we compare our insides, which are jello, you know, quivering jello, we compare them to someone's outer shell which appears at times to be real solid, we're gonna come up short, but let's remember something. Human beings are sensitive and they have feelings. I don't care who you are. Maybe you're very callous. Maybe you're a sociopath. I couldn't tell you. Maybe nothing bothers you. You're very different than me. I am a sensitive person. I'm a very sensitive person. And we have no right to hurt somebody at, you know, just because we want to hurt them. We want to lash out at them. Do I do it at times? Sure. I'm sure there's people whose feelings I have hurt. And it was, even though it was unintentional, you know what? Hurt feelings are hurt feelings. And you know what they say, guys? The road to hell is paved with good intention. And even though I might've had the best of intentions, if I hurt someone, that's not good. That's not okay. I have to be really, really careful. And we all have to be really careful because we, we as addicts, now I'm not just talking addicts, I'm talking anybody. We are perfectionistic, sensitive, immature rebels, perfectionistic, sensitive, immature rebels. And we seek these things out and we have to be very respectful of someone else's feelings and their humanity. Top of 82. Perhaps there are some cases where the utmost frankness is demanded. Frankness is honesty, okay? No outsider can appraise such an intimate situation. It may be that both will decide that the way of good sense and loving kindness is to let bygones be bygones. Each might pray about it, having the other one's happiness uppermost in mind. Now, that's a good thought, and that will work good. 
if you're able to do it. And that is let bygones be bygones, pray for the other person and move on. Most people are not that evolved. Most people are not that mature. Most people are going to wish you ill. You betrayed them, you this, you that. So let's just live according to the integrity of our program. We have to live according to that level of integrity. Keep in mind always in sight, keep it always in sight that we are dealing with that most terrible human emotion, jealousy. Good generalship may decide that the problem be attacked on the flank rather than risk a face-to-face -face combat. What does that mean? It means the flank is the side rather than, I, hi, honey, I'm sorry, I'm cheating on you. Uh, that may not be the best course to take. The better course to take might be to explain it in a way that explains to the person, here's my part in things. I love you. It will never happen again. And then make sure that it doesn't. Words are nice. Words are important. What's more important is action. Action is more important than words. Very famous football coach in Chicago said, what you're doing is screaming so loudly, I cannot hear what you're saying. What you're doing is screaming so loudly, I can't hear what you're saying means what you're doing is drowning out these words. So you can't be saying one thing and doing another. Another thing I would give you as a word of warning is we addicts are bullshitters. Don't bullshit a bullshitter. Don't lie to a liar. We are going to see through. I see a lot of people laughing, but uh, nobody is going to pick up on that like another bullshitter. So don't even try it. Don't even try it. I can, I can see that some of you are cracking up on that one. Okay. If we have no such complication, there is plenty we should do at home. Sometimes we hear an alcoholic say that the only thing he needs to do is keep sober. Certainly he must keep sober for there will be no home if he doesn't, but he is yet a long way from making good to the wife or parents whom for years he is so shockingly treated. No. Are there ways to shockingly treat your family without cheating? You bet there are. Sitting like a lump on a log, unavailable for conversation, unavailable for activities, unavailable for anything, because alcoholism, drug addiction, food addiction isolates you. You don't want to talk to anybody. You don't want to discuss your feelings. You don't want to discuss your lives. Abstinence makes you a bit chatty, but, but um, the food clams you up. You may talk, but it's not going to be about real issues. People that are in the food have a great deal of difficulty discussing real issues because we are so scared of reality when we're in the food. A person who's abstinent can be relied upon. And it says in the doctor's opinion, you may rely on anything they say about themselves. But the bottom line is 
There are ways to hurt your family. There are ways to hurt your spouse that have nothing to do with cheating. So you have to look at that. Were you at the bar when you should have been working? Did you drag your family through one eviction after the other? Did you drag your family through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, even though you weren't cheating? Were you sitting there like a bump on a log when there was when there was her relatives were there and you sat there and stewed? Did you sit there at a wedding? Did you sit there at a funeral and not greet people, not be the person that she married? Those are ways of being very hurtful that have nothing to do with cheating. You know what you've done. You know your behaviors. I don't. I'm just giving you some rough, vague examples of ways that we can hurt each other without cheating. Doesn't necessarily have to be cheating. Passing all understanding is the patience mothers and wives have had with alcoholics. Had this not been so, many of us would have no homes today, would perhaps be dead. What I can tell you is, is that many, many times I hear stories of redemption where the woman behind the man that I'm talking to was instrumental in that person's recovery. My ex-wife was as supportive of my recovery as any human being could be. She cooked. She she wasn't really much of a, of a cook, but when she did, when she shopped, she took my recovery into consideration. She was there supporting me in my recovery endeavors every step of the way. And that's a very good thing. That's a very good thing. Um, I'm very happy that there are people like that. But I also hear a lot the other side of the coin where the husband or the wife discourages the person from recovering. They discourage that person from going to meetings. They discourage that person from making outreach calls. They try to push food on the person. They try to push liquor and drugs on the person. They take them to places where it's very hard to be abstinent. They want them mired in the disease because they're more controllable that way. They feel bad about themselves when they're in the food. And it really doesn't work well at all for any aspect of any relationship when somebody is wallowing in the disease and the other person is encouraging them to wallow further in that disease. So it, it can be extremely, extremely difficult. We have a dynamic in any relationship that may or may not work for the people involved in it, but it's very hard to judge any relationship from the outside. Relationships look different from the inside than they do from the outside. I have friends and you do too. If I had their domestic situations, I would jump out a very high window. I, I would not want to be in their scenario. I would not want to be, but it works for them. They're happy. In one case, obviously, I think not, but okay. But they're happy. It works for them. God bless them. My bottom line is no relationship looks the same from the inside as it does from the outside. So these are things that, you know, couples have to sort of work out. And now that we have the big book, now that we have program, obviously we have that mechanism with which to write the ship. You know, we're not dead. We're not dead. And here's the hope. Just because something isn't what we'd like it to be today doesn't mean that it can't turn into something beautiful. 
a lot of relationships in the face of recovery can be resurrected to an absolutely beautiful, beautiful state. I had an instance, I had a, an opportunity recently, as a matter of fact, a week ago, I was out with a couple where the, the, the woman in their relationship is in program and the man in the relationship is in program and their dynamic is just beautiful to watch. It was very icy because uh, I was home. And it was very icy. It was rather cold, rather slippery. And I was watching her and him walk to the car. And I was watching the way they interacted. We went out, you know, I was out to, to a meal with them. It was a beautiful thing to behold. It was beautiful. The way they supported each other emotionally, supported each other in their recovery, physically, whatever it might be. That's a beautiful thing. I have also, and you have too, seen situations where, everything is met with skepticism. Everything is met with harsh sarcasm. Everything is met with just derogatory statements and negativity. That's a very difficult thing to live with. I, I wouldn't want to do that to myself. Hell, I'm in the, I'm in the eighth or ninth inning here. I don't want to live my life with that kind of negativity, but in the face of recovery and in the face of a desire to make things better, anything is possible. When God is involved, anything is possible. So these can be resurrected. You just have to identify it and you have to work at it. Easy for me to say I'm single, but the bottom line is, or I live alone, whatever, but the bottom line is um, you, you can you can do whatever you can do to you know resurrect with God's help. That's quite a quite a thing. Okay, sorry about that. Um, had this not been so, many of us had have no homes today and would perhaps be dead. The alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken. Sweet relationships are dead. Affections have been uprooted. Selfish and inconsiderate habits have kept the home in turmoil. We feel that a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. He is like the farmer who came up out of the cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. To his wife, he remarked, don't see anything the matter here, ma. Ain't it grand? The winds stop blowing. It is said that the average alcoholic, the average addict takes seven people to hell with them. If you are around an alcoholic, a drug addict, a gambler, a compulsive overeater, your life is going to be negatively impacted. To one degree or another, you are going to have things in your life that are going to be much more uphill, much more difficult than they would be had the person that you love, whether you're related to them by blood or affection, if they were not addicted, your life would be much, much better. It would be easier for sure. It is not an exaggeration that this disease doesn't just hurt the person that's afflicted, but it afflicts the people that are un it affects the people that are unafflicted. This disease spills out from the from the sufferer to the people around them. And this is unfortunate. 
there is more to this than just getting sober, more than just getting abstinent. That's why we have a 12-step program rather than a one-step program. The pain ways have a one-step program. You say, I'm not going to eat this way anymore, and you go on a diet. Well, we don't do that. We put the food down, yes, and to pick it up is death. But there's 11 steps where they don't mention the food. There's 11 steps where we're working on the mind. We're working on ourselves. And in doing so, we become much more available to a, for a relationship. I believe that for me, abstinence and recovery make a house a home. And that's what I believe. And the food or the liquor or the drugs or whatever makes it a hell, makes it an absolute hell. That's just my opinion. But there's more to this than getting sober. There's more to this than getting abstinence. And that's why it says in the second step, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Notice it doesn't say came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence. Notice it doesn't say that a power greater than myself could restore me to sobriety because the ceiling on sanity is infinitely higher, more roomy, broader, more inclusive to other things than sobriety or abstinence. There's more to life than what we eat and what we don't eat, much more to life. And if I'm in recovery, then I become ready as an adult to be in a relationship. I believe that my default mode in the food is that of a dependent, whining, self-pitying child. And nobody likes to be around that. Nobody likes to be around that. So I want to be in recovery, not just to recover, but I want to be available because living alone just flat out sucks. It just flat out sucks. And I'm not going to say it sucks at this age. For me, it has sucked at every age. It has just sucked. So in order to be available for anything, I have to be not just abstinent, I have to be in recovery. And boys and girls, there's a world of difference between somebody who's dieting successfully and someone in recovery. Recovery and dieting with group support are universes apart, universes apart. Let's continue. We're at the top of 83. Yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fill the bill at all. My mother was a little crazy. To say that she was a little crazy is like saying Lake Michigan is a little wet. But my mother did come up with a good one every once in a while. She came up with a good one. I remember when I was maybe seven or eight, maybe older, I said, I'm sorry. And she turned to me and said, you certainly are today. Well, that was a, a profound statement on her part. 
She did, as I say, come up with a good one every once in a while. It seemed to me she liked my friends a lot more than she liked me, but that may just be my imagination. I'm not really sure about that. But the bottom line is, she said, you certainly are. And I had done something pretty heinous. But the bottom line is, is that we cannot just talk about being sorry. We have to take action. We don't we don't apologize to the Constitution of the United States. We amend the Constitution of the United States. What is the difference? We don't apologize, meaning just words. When we amend the Constitution of the United States, we change it, we alter it. And with every amendment that we have, we have changed the laws of our country a little bit and hopefully for the better. I think there's 26 amendments at this point. I could be wrong, but that's okay. Um, and so 26 times in the history of our country, we have decided to put something into that constitution that will alter the way we do business in this country. Now we have an executive branch which executes the law and a judicial branch and a legislative branch that makes sure these amendments are enforced. The executive branch is really in charge of that. Now, this isn't a government class, but we don't have that in our lives. So who has to make sure that the amendment that we make in our, in our domestic lives is enforced? We do. We report to a sponsor. We pray to God. We ask God for guidance. We cannot continue to do this errant behavior and think that we're in recovery. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. And so we have to be a sponsor and we have to have a sponsor if we are to be successful in our endeavor of recovering. My sponsees teach me more than any college professor ever could in their lives. My sponsees teach me about myself. And the one subject that I get an F in, in most tests, is the subject of Harlan G., I know you often better than I know me because I lack that objectivity. I lack that, uh, that voice that says, no, it really isn't that way. And what does the big book tell me? A solitary self-appraisal proved insufficient. So this solitary self-appraisal gives me nothing but lies. Lies gives me lies. I need to be a sponsor. I need to have a sponsor. When I am done with the conversation of my sponsees, I say to them every day, thank you for helping God keep me out of the food for one more day. How do they do that? By opening my eyes to who I am. It's not that important who they are. What's more important is who am I? And by listening to their trials and their strife, I learn about me. 
And I learned that these ideas, thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors that I believe were secret unto me are not so secret after all. That there are many, many people that go through the insecurities that I go through on a daily basis. There are many, many people who struggle with the very same things that I struggle with every day. Let's finish this paragraph and then we'll talk. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it, being very careful not to criticize them. Their defects may be glaring, but the chances are that our own actions are partly responsible. In other words, what does it come back to yet again? What's my part in this? What's my part in this, in this disturbance? What's my part? See, I see so clearly that you are crazy, that you are nuts, that you are wrong, that you should have zigged when you zigged, but I don't see that in myself. I don't see that so clearly in myself. I have to work at that constantly. And when I see my part in things, it helps me grow as a person. It helps me get closer to God and further away from Twinkies and Thin Mints but the Girl Scouts are trying to push upon me in their drug-dealing uniforms of green and brown. They're trying to push drugs on me in the form of a Thin Mint, knowing that I could, I could do five boxes of Thin Mints before I get to the car. But they're trying to push their drugs on me, mean little girls. Okay. So we clean house with the family and asking each morning in meditation that our creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. Those are step 11 and 10 references in step nine. Now, why am I ending with this? Because I want to remind you that as we get to step 10, we don't have to wait to be done with nine. In step nine, we're referencing step 10, and step 11. So we do the steps in order, but we do them together. We're going to bust the myth of you don't start a step till you're done with the previous step. Not true. You have a clear reference to 10 and 11 in nine. And when we get to step 10, we're going to see that we commence this way of living as we cleaned up the past. So I'm preparing you for where we're going to go in the next couple of sessions, the next couple of weeks. Remember always, as we move forth from here, we move forward. Some amends need to be made very directly with intimate detail of what you're sorry for and what you did. Sometimes they do not. These amends are critical for our recovery. However, you do not have the right to save your skin at the expense of another person. You don't have the right to involve another person. So you need a sponsor. You need a sponsor that knows the program, that's objective and sober so that they can guide you through how to make these amends, when to make the amends, and so on. Very, very important. Remembering always that without amends, there is no recovery. Why is that? 
because the justification that you have in your mind for not making the amend will rack you with guilt and shame and remorse. And as it does so, the brain will focus in on the sense of ease and comfort that comes instantly by eating certain foods. And eventually you will eat those foods, you will trigger the physical allergy, you'll pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to eat those foods again, and you will repeat that cycle over and over and over and over and over and over again, the mind saying the food makes perfect sense and the body enforcing that it does not. So you need to go over these things with a sponsor. Remember always that we are here to serve God and we cannot serve him while we're under the bondage of the guilt, the shame, the remorse, and eventually the food that will come by not making these amends. This is critical to our life critical to our life. Okay, before I turn it over, I have given up math for Lent. I am not doing any math during